Good, so good morning. St. Gregory of Nyssa says there are infinite degrees of perfection. So two days ago we had a perfect day on Bear Island. Yesterday we didn't see the sun at all, but it was still perfect in its own way. And today there's another kind of perfection. So I'd like to welcome you all back and welcome those who are joining us from different time zones and different uh, parts of the planet. So we've been looking this week at the story of the, the passion narrative and reflecting on it as it illustrates to us some of the essential meaning and the essential elements of what we call the human condition, what makes up life. And meaning is a very important part of life. Um, if we lose meaning, we lose almost the will to live. Uh, there's a great book um, uh, by, uh, uh, about the survival at, uh, in, in Auschwitz and the death camps. And it identified one of the main reasons that people were able to survive during that terrible ordeal and um, for him it was the uh, Viktor Frankl's uh, man's search for meaning. It was, the, it was whether people had a, uh, a meaning, a purpose, over and above just getting through the day and surviving from m moment to moment, which was a big enough challenge. But was there a, was there a deeper or fuller meaning in life? And I thought today we could look at... Um, the next sort of stage of the story of the narrative which takes us into Gethsemane. So we've looked at those two elements of relationship, uh, the anointing that where we receive recognition and loving attention and tenderness where we are known and the other extreme, of course, Judas's betrayal. And these, these are two elements of human experience as far as relationships are concerned. Sometimes they may even be contained in the same relationship or at different times, especially if relationships break down or go wrong. So, and then we looked at community, the uh, importance of being able to see ourselves as part of a network of relationships which is never going to be perfect. There will be uh, aspects of that community experience, whether it's family or spiritual community or work community. There will be aspects of it where we do feel anointed by loving attention and care. But there will also be times of darkness, the shadow side of human, the human condition, where we will experience or feel that we are experiencing rejection. And sometimes it doesn't matter whether it's real or whether it's imagined. Real or imagined experience can be equally powerful. You, know, so you, you convince yourself or you're convinced that somebody hates you and uh, is hurting you and uh, wants you out of the picture and 
and that may be quite illusory in fact, but uh, it, it, feels, it feels like that. I remember once talking to two, two monks many years ago who had uh, this terrible antipathy towards each other and nobody could quite understand why they sort of seemed to reject each other so much and they were always coming to me and saying you know that uh, they've both gone to heaven now so um, <laughs> so they're meeting there um, but they were coming to me and saying that they really felt uh, so-and-so was really you know a good person but Whenever you hear that, you know there's something else coming. You know, he's a, a really nice person, you know, a really good person at heart. <laughs> but, so anyway, they were both uh, actually convinced that the other one didn't want them there. And they would both say to me, um, I really think this is not the right place uh, for, for him, you know, it should go somewhere else. So this went on for some time, finally, and managed to get them together and um, just in a conversation as they learned to listen to each other they heard the same thing it was a mirroring you know this dark side of the relationship and they to everyone's relief they became the best of buddies uh, after that <laughs> um, so sometimes our feeling of rejection our feeling of betrayal can be imaginary, like Othello, you know, convinced that Desdemona had, uh, had, had betrayed him. Uh, totally untrue, but nevertheless it led him to, to kill her. So, whether it's real or imagined, it can be of the same level of, uh, of intense suffering. So, the story now takes us from the Last Supper, which we'll look at in more detail on, on Thursday, um, where these two elements come together. Because in the Eucharist, in the Last Supper, the Passover meal, um, there is, there, we see friendship, companionship, communion, but we also see this element of of darkness. Judas is there and Judas leaves the supper to go off and do his his task. So then after the uh, Last Supper the Jesus goes with his companions to the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kedron Valley. If you've heard the story from childhood you the, the, you may have felt like me that the phrase Kedron Valley had this this exotic. Do you ever feel that? It's, it's kind of got this. Do you feel that? Yeah, Kedron Valley. It sounds, you know, some like the Grand Canyon or something like that. But actually, uh, the Kedron Valley it, it runs. It's, it's a long uh, geological uh, formation. But at that point in Jerusalem, it's just a little dip, really. It's sort of like crossing the road, almost. So it's not quite as dramatic as it sounds. But of course, it is a drama that is un unfolding. So he goes to this little estate called 
uh, Gethsemane, where he had gone before on many occasions, apparently, for prayer. And some years ago, when I was there with a, with a pilgrimage, we went uh, and meditated in, Geth in Gethsemane. Um, so everybody moved around the, the garden and chose a little place of their own to meditate. And we were told that there were, I think there were four or five uh, olive trees there, which are 2,500 years old. So it was quite moving, actually, to sit there and see what Jesus would have seen. Presumably it was a smaller tree at that time. But um, it, it, it brings the physical reality behind the story uh, to light. And I was also quite moved by seeing on the ground these little red flowers, I don't know what they're called, but I had seen them previously when we were in Galilee on the Sermon on the Mount, or the Mount of the Sermon. And uh, so Galilee was of course Jesus's home area where he was at home. And you could imagine that moment where he, where he gave his teaching to a receptive and sympathetic audience. And it was there that he speaks about the lilies of the field, what we translate as the lilies of the field, the, the little flowers that uh, have a glory, uh, he says, uh, which surpasses all the glories of Solomon. So, um, and those, those, those were the same flowers in Gethsemane as I, as I remembered seeing in Galilee. And I thought if they were there on that night when Jesus went there, he must have seen them or, and felt the connection. So these, these are elements, little details of the story that bring it home to us and make it possible for us to sympathize, to empathize with the suffering that he went through in Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane has become a a byword for suffering. So I thought that today we could, we could look at that element of the human condition which uh, is suffering and uh, reflect on it before we meditate. So suffering comes in, in many forms, physical and psychological. And the meaning of suffering is a central question of the human condition. What does it mean? Why should we suffer? Why should I be suffering? And it's a central question of all religious consciousness. I mentioned the Buddha uh, begins his teaching with this statement that life is suffering and, and affliction. But there is a reason for it and there is a, uh, a cause and there is a solution or there is an ending of suffering. And clearly in these days, the last days of Jesus, the Passion, we are, we are confronted more and more intensely with, this, with his own suffering. And in his suffering, if we are able to listen to the story, in his suffering, 
we have the opportunity to face this question in our own lives and to find the meaning that we need to live uh, through that um, reflection. It's not reflection really not in just in the sense of thinking about but reflection in the sense that he reflects our experience. We see our experience in him and his experience in us. And that's, what, that's the whole meaning of, of spending the time we are doing on uh, the story, on the narrative. It's to allow that, as it were, mutual reflection to, to take place. And in terms of Christian faith, this takes us through the human experience of Jesus, connecting with our human experience into the deeper mystery, uh, the deeper reality of his nature, of his meaning for the world. So there are all kinds of uh, suffering and all of them perhaps awaken in us uh, different levels of anxiety or anguish or physical pain and perhaps behind them all is this fundamental anxiety about death, the fear of death. Death seems to be the greatest suffering. We, we are often prepared to put up with a lot of suffering in order to stay alive. So to survive is the, is the ultimate goal in one sense. Uh, it may not be the ultimate goal, but it often feels as if it is. And we will do anything or undergo anything in order to remain alive. And suffering always awakens in us this, this fear of death. So, in the Passion narrative, which gathers momentum in the Gethsemane episode, we focus upon Jesus' passage through suffering, Passover, Passion, Passage. To the word passion um, it doesn't mean emotional intensity, it means going through, passing through. And the passion here is the, the <coughs> involves the passing through this tunnel of suffering. When we are in intense suffering, whether it's due to loss or to some new accident that has happened to us, um, we feel that we're, we're at a, a new stage of, of, on the road. And often it feels like a tunnel which obscures the view around us. We can't see anything else in intense suffering. That's all we are aware of. Um, toothache, you know, there's only one thing with really bad toothache. <laughs> you know, the, the bigger questions of life just uh, contract into, uh, into this fixation upon uh, the pain. So, in, with, with Jesus we can identify this element of the human condition, the, the, our passage through pain, suffering. And here it's all the more 
intense and disturbing because it is undeserved. You know, you, even if you got a bad toothache and you, it was your fault, in a, well not your fault, but it was, you, you, you exa exacerbated it by not going to the dentist every six months or every year as you were supposed to do. You denied something and eventually the denial uh, broke down and you had to face the reality. And, you know, in terms of health even, we might say, you know, we don't look after ourselves, we don't take a little bit of exercise, we don't eat wisely, then eventually the body is going to uh, give us feedback on that. So, but not all t kinds of suffering have that kind of cause or responsibility. And in the suffering that Jesus is going through, we can say he did not deserve it. it is, and it is not accidental either. It's not just that he was walking across the road and tragically got hit by a car. It's not an accident. Nor did he deserve it. So what is it? It's made all the more painful because he is an innocent victim. A totally innocent victim. All he did was to tell the truth. And this brought down on him the wrath of the authorities. I just am reading at the moment, uh, or have been for a few weeks, a uh, long biography of uh, Franz Kafka. And Kafka was a rather um, obsessive, compulsive individual, and not much happened in his life, except in his head and in his one or two intense relationships. Um, but what he had was a compulsion to write. And out of his rather, you might say, neurotic kind of personality and, and the, the uh, co compulsiveness came the, the, a major force of, of literature in the 20th century. And we can still read it. And this expression, Kafka, Kafka-esque, captures in many ways what modern life has developed for us. The dehumanization of bureaucracy and also the sense of oppression. The feeling that many people have today and the cause of much mental suffering. The feeling that life as we live it through the institutions we've created and so on is, um, is getting at us. So in one of his one of his great works, The Trial, this innocent person is picked up by the police, uh, examined and put on trial without even knowing what he's on trial for. So it's a nightmare, a nightmare of paranoia, but the paranoia is justified. You wake up and you say, actually, there is somebody after me, and they are actually uh, threatening my very existence. 
So I think we, when we look at the, the passion of Jesus, we see, in a way, a kind of Kafkaesque nightmare taking, taking place in which an innocent person is selected. The finger puts, is put on them. They become a scapegoat. This is a very important theological idea for understanding the, uh, the passion. And the high priests themselves even speak about Jesus as a scapegoat. It is better that one person should suffer for the people than that the whole people should suffer. So that sounds okay theoretically unless you happen to be the scapegoat. In which case this full dark force of being selected unfairly, life is deeply unfair in this. So, uh, and this, this first comes to, 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 to full, fully, become fully exposed in the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before we, we look at that, just to say one other way that may give us a, uh, a handle or a distinction that helps us to understand the meaning of what we are contemplating. Simone Weil, who knew what suffering was in her life, physical suffering and as well as mental suffering, Simone Weil uh, makes a distinction between suffering and affliction. <coughs> suffering, whether it, is ev whether it is a toothache or whether it is even the loss of a beloved person in your life always has some kind of physical manifestation. So when you're suffering grief, you have a heavy heart, or your heart is broken when somebody betrays you. So there's a, there's a, a physical component even to something that is essentially emotional or psychological. Um, but affliction is a little different. Affliction does always, she says, have a physical component as well. But the difference is, is that affliction takes over complete control of all parts of one's life. Physical, psychological and social. And it involves, as we see in the narrative of the passion, social degradation. So the person is not only rejected but degraded in the social network. In what should be a community for them, they become a degraded person as happened progressively in Nazi Germany as the Jews were uh, or the, were, were um, degraded, not allowed to serve uh, in professional life or academic life and eventually of course by stages turned into a, a dehumanized uh, person 
do it by stages and it's, it's easier, easier to get people to accept it. Uh, and then, of course, the more degraded they are, you think about the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, couldn't be more degraded socially than they were, uh, then it becomes much easier to abuse them. And what we find difficult to understand or imagine or certainly to, to watch is the, um, the cruelty, the sadism of, of nice people who uh, take the opportunity to inflict uh, additional suffering and humiliation on those who've already lost everything and any right to complain. So, and this, this is, you know, we see this in Guantanamo Bay, we see it in Srebrenica, we see it uh, in the Nazi uh, camps, uh, this disturbing relationship between the degradation of, the hu of, of human beings, which also degrades the people who are, have control over them. They become, uh, in their own way, although they're the oppressor or the torturer, they become degraded in their humanity. And we see this, essentially we see this in, the, in what happens after Gethsemane. The, uh, the, the trial, the scourging, and the crucifixion. So Jesus is at the center of this. So he's going through a very real part, not a part we like to think about too much, but we need to think about it at least this week, an essential, integral part of the human condition. <coughs> Slavery, of course, is the classic example of this affliction, where the slave, the individual, has absolutely no dignity or right, does not, is excluded from the community of humanity, but is forced to, to, to serve it. And when we speak about Jesus as the suffering servant, in the phrase, that Isaiah uses and that gives us a handle on the meaning of uh, Holy Week, the suffering servant, maybe it would be better to say the slave, because a good servant may still have rights and may, you know, be looked after by, by their employer. So servant is a little, a little softer, but the idea of a slave is very different. So affliction has a physical element of suffering. We see that in the, uh, in the Passion narrative. In the film, The Passion of the Christ, which I haven't seen, um, I think there's a 20-minute scene of the scourging. And some people love the film. I couldn't bear the idea of going to see it, so I haven't seen it, so anyway. It seems to me to exaggerate, or not so much exaggerate as isolate the physical component 
of the suffering of Jesus in a way that actually the, the gospel story doesn't. There's no sort of lingering over the, the terrible uh, physical uh, suffering that Jesus would have gone through. But there's no c compulsive voyeurism about it either. It, it's there and you feel it. You can imagine to some degree what it would be like to be crucified or to be scourged or have thorns put round your head. But, um, but the Gospels don't linger on that. What they give us is a picture of the whole passage that Jesus is going through. It has a physical component, his affliction, but he has been excluded from his own community by power, by the authorities, and betrayed or betrayed or abandoned by those who were his closest uh, community, his closest friends. So it's affliction in every sense of the word that Simone Bay describes it. It's difficult to see affliction in others sometimes because what may be affliction for me may not be affliction for you. And it's difficult to see in others unless we look at them with a different kind of vision, an other-centered way of seeing. And the worst example of not seeing like this is where you just tell someone who's maybe suffering depression, come on, get over it. Come on, life isn't so bad. Just uh, get up and you know, just count your blessings, um, which is a pretty unperceptive way of seeing the suffering of others, which for them may be a profound form of affliction. So we have to see, in a way, through the eyes of Christ. We have to see not just with our own perception and with our own quick judgment and dismissal, of others, but, look, but we have to develop this contemplative gaze, which is linked to true compassion. Compassion is not pity. It's not just uh, feeling sorry for someone. With pity or feeling sorry for, there's always this element of, oh, it's terrible. but brackets, thank God it's not me, which is why I was driving along the highway the other day and the, suddenly the traffic got quite slow, congested, so I thought there something must have happened. Or, and what actually happened was that there had been an accident, uh, but the cars involved in the accident had been pulled off the highway, uh, so the highway was quite free, but everybody slowed down to have a look. I don't know, I can't <laughs> judge everyone who drove past, but whether that was compassion or something else. You know, you can vo be voyeuristic about other people's suffering. We say the right thing, usually. 
uh, and think that we're feeling the right thing. But there is always this little element, thank God it wasn't me. Anyway, it's difficult to be able, it's difficult to identify affliction in others unless we see with the eyes of Christ, with, uh, with the eye of the heart, let's say. Otherwise, they may just seem crazy or peculiar or eccentric or funny and we easily dismiss them from our consideration in that way. And because of that, and because affliction is always disturbing to us, when we do come into its presence, uh, we may laugh at them as well. We make fun of them, which only adds to the affliction. It's hard to feel compassion for those in affliction. It's easier with more obvious forms of suffering where you even may be able to do something about it or medical or psychological um, or even just to, to be with someone when they're suffering is, is doing something about it without having to solve the problem for them. Um, but when real affliction is present, it is almost impossible to do anything because this person is out of reach, is out of touch. They're no longer in the community. They're on the other side. And when that happens, um, we ourselves are disturbed because, of course, we're seeing something that we don't want to see or imagine. But when compassion does flow towards someone who is afflicted in that way, it feels like a miracle because you're, you're connecting across this, this huge distance, this huge abyss, with someone who is on the other side, out of community. And in the Christian, uh, in Christian, the tradition, especially from about the, maybe after the 12th century, the 13th, 14th century, um, the a form of prayer, a form of devotion developed, uh, which focused upon the suffering upon the passion of Christ, upon the suffering he went through. And this is reflected suddenly in the kinds of crucifixes that we see. Maybe it was related to the ordeals of the 14th century that Europe was going through with the Black Death and Hundred Years' War and uh, you know, half the population wiped out. Um, anyway, there was this, this new focus upon the physical suffering of Jesus in Christian prayer and devotion. And when we look at it now, we often feel it's a little bit over the top, a little bit too extreme. You look at, in, 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 the, in the Spanish world, you know, the, the images of 
the crucifixion, the focusing in the Philippines as well because of that, uh, where they actually crucify uh, somebody every year. Um, there is a, um, it seems over the top, too much is disturbing, disturbingly dark. And it, it, it may well be, f certainly for us. But there's, there's also some value, I think, in contemplating the suffering of Jesus, not in the way that it becomes obsessive or compulsive, as it seems to me in some of those forms of devotion or films, but, um, but in a way that allows uh, us to identify ourselves in and through what he is going through and it gives us therefore a, a liberating insight into this strange and dark aspect of our, of our human existence. So it can be, it's not that you get stuck in all of this blood and gore and pain and sadism. You can do because it has a dark fascination. But uh, it actually becomes a key to help you to, into an insight into its, into its meaning. So, let's, uh, let's just look at this um, passage in the Gethsemane. When they reached a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him. So they all went with him, but only a few he took with him. These are the three he always takes with him into special moments where he needs his sort of executive committee with him. Horror and dismay came over him. And he said to them, and note that he said to them, my heart is ready to break with grief. Stop here and stay awake. Then he went forward a little, threw himself on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass him by. Abba, Father, he said, all things are possible to you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He came back and found them asleep, and he said to Peter, Asleep, Simon? Were you not able to keep awake for one hour? Stay awake, all of you, and pray that you be spared the test. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed. On his return he found them asleep again, because their eyes were heavy and they did not know how to answer him. The third time he came and said to them, still sleeping, still taking your ease, enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed to sinful men. Up 
Let us go forward. My betrayer is upon us. So, um, he is with, he's in a community and in his intimate community, but he is going through what will become affliction. You might say he hasn't quite, he's on the, he's on the cusp of going into affliction. And part of the sign of that is that although he's with this close community, they're not with him. They can't even stay awake and be with him. They drank too much wine at the dinner, maybe. And they just can't stay awake. And we fall asleep sometimes just to escape difficult moments or great grief. We just go into a deep, dark, dreamless sleep. In any case, we see him, he goes a little bit away from them, not too far away, to pray alone, and then comes back and realizes he's been more alone than he thought. And he had said to them, so this is not just something that's going on in his head, he was able to say to them, I, I am desperate. My heart is breaking with grief for what is happening and what is going to happen, what must happen. Um, now, at this moment, he, he prays. St. Matthew says he goes back each time he goes back using the same words as before. So I think this is not just petitionary prayer in a way, but it, this is how it is, this is how it is expressed. So he prays to Abba, which is the intimate word for Father, that if there's any chance that the script can be rewritten and he, has, he can avoid this, please let it happen. But then says, if it can't, then your will be done. So there's still a sense of connection here with the Father. He, and he's not blaming the Father. Uh, he's not judging the Father. He's not angry with the Father for making this happen. He's, he still feels connected. The Father here, when the Dalai Lama was asked, what question would you like to ask Jesus if uh, you could meet him? And he said immediately, what is the nature of the Father? It's not a question that many Christians have ever thought about, probably. So what is the nature, the personal nature of the Father? Um, we anthropomorphize, we turn the f God into another human being. And so we get angry with God because God let this happen. But in this connection that Jesus has with his own source, it's a personal source, personal connection. The Father, we could say, is the ground of being. This is the ground, but the personal ground, in which everything happens. And so he's now in touch, he still feels in touch with the personal nature of this ground of his being. But it doesn't intervene and 
like a godfather and make things better. So he's still going through the passage or the tunnel. The sense of connection seems to be broken on the cross where he expresses his experience of abandonment. Anyway, we'll come to that later. So, what do we see here in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane? We see his fear of death. And, may, and not only the fear of the suffering involved before he dies, but the beginning of the realization that he is going to lose everything. Every aspect of his identity is going to be touched and changed by what he will go through. He will be in affliction. And the uh, exchange he has with, with the, or the, what he says to the, uh, his friends, his disciples here, um, how, you, how you read that, what kind of tone of voice you, you, you imagine he was using is up to you, really. Is he... Is he berating them? Is he, is he uh, accusing them? I always feel a, a little irony in what he's saying. Um, but anyway, that's another kind of imagination. But what he's saying is, stay awake. And this is crucial, I think, to understanding the meaning of suffering. What suffering we can avoid, we should avoid. What suffering we cannot avoid, we have to face, confront, go through, and stay awake. It doesn't mean to say we can't take, you know, painkillers. But it means that the painkiller we take should be appropriate to the spiritual meaning or the deeper human meaning of what we are going through in the suffering. In other words, what we easily do is distract ourselves. And distraction is a form of not staying awake. It's a form of allowing ourselves to fall asleep. And we may distract ourselves with the TV. We may distract ourselves with drugs or drink or, you know, hyperactivity. Very common uh, for people, for, for us today, just to get busier and busier and busier. We run away from the suffering that we should need to be confronting. And with meditation, I think, we, we have this way of staying awake. And very often, when we are suffering, this afternoon we'll look at other, you know, 
other for, uh, forms of suffering, psychological suffering or especially. Um, when we are suffering, those are often the times where we will say, I can't meditate. I just can't do it. I sit down to meditate and all the grief wells up inside of me. Or I, I sit down to meditate and this dark depression just uh, grips me. I can't face it. And if you can't, you can't. But the, the, the truth is that if we can meditate as best we can, and this is not a condemnation of us if we can't, but if we can meditate as best we can during those times of suffering, or fear, or loss, we actually, go, we, we actually go through the tunnel more quickly. Meditation doesn't solve your problems. I have some problems with uh, the water in my house at the moment. And I would love to think that when I sat down to meditate, the leak <laughs> would be cured. And when I got up for meditation, everything would be working perfectly and I wouldn't find another leak. But <laughs> it doesn't work like that. What it does do is that you can look at the leak and say, well, it's a leak. It's not going to be the end of the world and I'll get through this week. <coughs> and then, and my cousin who's been helping me very generously, he's very, very consoling because he he's, has a very um, practical approach to these things. And, uh, um, and he always, he always says, we'll, we'll, we'll fix it. Now, it may not be fixed today or next week. And some other problem may arise in it. But it's very important to be reassured that it, it's not the end of the world. And sometimes things that you go through feel like the end of the world, whether it's plumbing problems, or losing your passport on the day before you go off on a trip, or even the greater tragedies and losses of life. So to be able to, uh, to pray in this deeper way, not please solve the problem while I'm praying, or make it go away, but help me to go through this. Or the prayer itself is not a prayer to, to be helped, because the prayer is the help. That is what you are, what you need. And that gives you the strength, it gives you the perspective, it gives you the, the common sense to be able to keep it in perspective and to go through it. And I think in an <laughs> intense way this is what we see also in this Gethsemane moment of prayer. And there's a, there's a shift in the, in the mood or in the way Jesus is speaking. <coughs> 
from before the prayer, my heart is breaking. I'm overwhelmed with dismay and grief. I can't bear this. And after the prayer, even though he's discovered that the disciples have been pretty useless, uh, he has a new strength, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. okay. and, a, and what would otherwise have become depression, when you, when you suffer enough, you can go into a depression with grief or anything, but we don't see depression in Jesus here at all. He's got a lot of energy. He says, up, let's go forward, we've got something to do. Not looking forward to it, but he's engaged with it in a different way. So meditation in the same way, if we can do it, and if we have the support of others who may fall asleep, and you may fall asleep during meditation, but if on the whole you have this support uh, of a community uh, to help you through these times and to continue meditating through these times, it gives you a, a way of dealing with the problem. It gives you a perspective on the meaning of your suffering. Okay, so let's, oh, let's uh, end this session, this section with, um, from the Upanishads again. And then we'll take a little break before we meditate. This is from the Isha Upanishad. There are, there are demon-haunted worlds, regions of utter darkness. Whoever in life denies the spirit falls into that darkness of death. The spirit without moving is swifter than the mind. The senses cannot reach him. He is ever beyond them. Standing still, he overtakes those who run. To the ocean of his being, the spirit of life leads the streams of action. He moves and he moves not. He is far and he is near. He is within all and he is outside all. Whoever sees all beings in his own self and his own self in all beings loses all fear. <laughs>